Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. Hello. It is good to be here with you tonight. Uh, as Caleb said, my name is Andrew, and typically I'd be here as the announcements guy, uh, but tonight I have the opportunity to be preaching guy. And so I am honored to be here with you all tonight in the Word of God. Uh, if you'll open with me in your Bibles, I'm going to be preaching this week and next week, and we're going to be in the same chapter. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, um, I, I want... Ideally, not that you should want to look at me, but I, w- I want everyone, if you do have a Bible, to be looking at your Bible as much as possible tonight, uh, because I, I think what we have before us, we have a pretty lengthy narrative. It's a singular context. Jesus is at a dinner party, uh, but I, I think that there's some complicated themes that run through this, and so rather than looking at the screen, the screen's fine as well, but I, I do want you asking your own questions of the text, trying uh, in the Spirit to understand the Word of God before you, and so, and so with that... Uh, I'd like now to reveal my sermon title. Uh, we're going to be the first 24 verses, Luke 14, 1 through 24, and the sermon title is Awkward Dinner Party. Uh, the reason being is that the context, we have Jesus at a dinner party, and it gets pretty darn awkward uh, because unlike myself, Jesus has no qualms with saying uh, incredibly like, challenging things to other people. Like Even with my own family sometimes, like if, I, if something happens, like I seldom have... Uh, the sort of prophetic courage that Jesus always has to say what is true, uh, and even to challenge. Pres- um, uh, there was a word I was looking at beforehand. I cannot get this word. Uh, presumptions, I think, is the word. I don't think that's the right word. But the presumptions of the people there to speak truth uh, to people of authority. Jesus does that. It gets really awkward, and he calls people out. And so I, I want us to kind of understand sort of the tension that's at this dinner party. So I've titled it Awkward Dinner Party. So hopefully that is fitting for this. Um, That's the context. And then I want to tell you really quickly before we dive into the text, uh, sort of the three movements that we're going to see at this dinner party. And the first of these is what what I believe we're first going to see is an example of the love of Jesus working. We're going to see that in the first, uh, I believe, six verses. Then we're going to see a parable. Uh, He addresses the guests when he notices something. And I believe this parable characterizes the nature of the love of Christ. And in the same movement, we see what I believe to be a test for Christian love. So I think that in God's mercy, uh, after displaying the nature of the love of Christ, he gives us a sort of test for us to understand and to test our own love as believers in Christ to see whether it measures up uh, to the spirit of Christ. And then lastly, the last movement we're going to see uh, is he uh, leaves this dinner party with a surprising reveal. I, th- I think it's pretty surprising, and I think it ought to be uh, perhaps sort of controversial for us in the sense that I think it challenges popular presumption uh, and understanding. And that, uh, that reveal is that not everyone wants to eat bread in the kingdom of God, or that is to say that not everybody who, who wants to go to heaven, I'm not simply referring to people who don't believe in heaven, but among those who profess, I believe in heaven, I believe in God, there are some, to our surprise, I believe, that actually do not want to go to heaven. And I think we see why in this text. And so in that, I think we have a warning for us against uh, worldliness and against coveting much possessions and against riches. And so 
Without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the text. And so we'll start then with the example of the love of God, of the love of Jesus specifically working. And so in this narrative, we have what I think are two situations and two answers. The first situation we see, first four verses. So I'm going to go ahead and read the first four verses. It says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. So here's situation one. This is already sort of ripe with awkwardness uh, context here. So it says one Sabbath, important key word here. So first note then is this was a day of the week sanctioned by God for perpetual observance, weekend, every single week on a particular day for the whole nation of Israel. It was law for them. And it was, it was for the purpose of honoring God by refraining from working. Leading to the day of Jesus, it's important that we know that there was rabbis, lawyers, Pharisees who had sought to very strictly define what, what constitutes work. It's kind of vague to say we ought not to work on the Sabbath. And so they, just, they took it upon themselves to define very, very strictly what was work. And so that sort of sets up the awkwardness here. It seems like there might even be a little bit of a trap going on here. So the, the second note I have is, let's, let's take note of the guests at this dinner party. It says it's hosted by a ruler of the Pharisees. We don't know who this man is. And then there's two categories of guests here. We have Pharisees and lawyers. And so there are, of course, some differences between these two groups, but they are largely characterized by the same spirit, and Jesus criticizes them largely for the same things. These people are religious authorities in the day of Jesus who fixed themselves as people with considerable religious authority for the common Jewish folk of the day. So they, they thought themselves to be authorities on interpreting the law of God for uneducated people. They thought, maybe I hold the key to what it means to understand the law of God. And so they, they fastened a pretty heavy burden on the people. And with that, here are the, the main criticisms that you, if, you're gonna, if you read the whole gospel, you'll notice these are really the main opponents, if you will, of the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus is very harsh in his criticism of them. Here are the main criticisms. One is hypocrisy. Uh, they heavily burdened the Jewish people with dead religion. And they themselves would not carry that burden. This is something that Jesus says earlier, even in the Gospel of Luke, that they heavily burdened the people and they would not lift a finger uh, on that burden themselves. Second thing is pride. This is because they thought themselves to be very righteous because they lived by a lot of religious rules and code. And so when I refer to that tonight, I'm going to refer to it as code morality. They believed in code morality, that they were very strict adherents to these, these uh, vast um, array of codes. And that was a means for them of securing righteousness. And so they thought themselves very righteous before God. And lastly, it was a people, um, it was a people just like them who had killed and martyred the Old Testament prophets sent from God, thinking that they were doing a service to God, and now they pretend to honor those same prophets. So earlier in the Gospel of Luke, I've mentioned one of the criticisms Jesus have is that these lawyers, they, they decorate the tombs of the prophets. They say, oh, these men of God. And Jesus criticizes them, saying that they are of the same spirit of the men who in those days had martyred those very same prophets. So Jesus does not, needless to say, speak very kindly. So you can see why this might be such an awkward dinner. And it seems like there might be some sort of trap going on here. So look with me here. It says, he went to dine there. They were watching carefully. 
Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. We don't know where this man comes from. It doesn't necessarily say he's been invited. It might even look as though the Pharisees had put him there to see exactly what a man like Jesus might do. That's situation one. What does Jesus do on the Sabbath when there's a man before him who has a sickness? So a little bit about dropsy. This is the last note. It's a little bit, uh, it's, it's understood to be what we now call, uh, I believe it's um, edema, something which left untreated is pretty miserable. I've, I've, I've consulted the resident doctor here at HCC, Jay Lacani, and apparently if you do not treat edema, it is miserable for you. And so this is a suffering man. That's before Jesus. We don't know why he's there. It looks like it might be a trap. It says in verse three, Jesus responded, not to any words per se, but I believe the situation to the lawyers and asked the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They have no answer. So what is the answer? Like, what does a man like Jesus do when there is before him a man who suffers and it's the Sabbath day? And the answer is, we see in verse four, then he took him and healed him and sent him away. A man like Jesus, when confronted with a, with a suffering person, meets that need with immediate mercy and compassion. That is the nature of the love of Christ working. It does not wait for it not to be the Sabbath. It does not wait for a more convenient time. And it does not first consider uh, the interests of self. It doesn't say, is this in my interest? It acts with immediacy and urgency. And it, it's as likely to do that mercy on the Sabbath as it is likely to do that on a day that is not the Sabbath. That is what we see the love of God does. And so that's the first situation. Um, and it doesn't, again, regard self or moral or code morality. So let's move on then here to the second situation, which Jesus actually creates with a theoretical question. So let's look at verses five and six now. It says, And Jesus said to them, Which of you, speaking to the Pharisees, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. He creates here a parallel situation, except instead of a person with a sickness on the Sabbath, it is still a Sabbath, but it is someone's own son or an ox. And some manuscripts actually read donkey, but same point. Son, ox, donkey. Again, let's make a few notes about the details here. So here's the first note I want to make for us tonight about this, that in asking this question, what I do not believe Jesus is appealing to in this specific context is some sense of humanitarianism in the Pharisees or even belief in the inherent dignity of human beings, per se. I don't think he's saying, uh, which of you, if you have a son or an ox, won't pull him out of the well because they are worthy of that sort of mercy? I don't think that's the question he's asking. He's not appealing to a sense that, uh, that this is a compassionate thing to do. Um, and it could, of course, be the case, but what makes me doubt this uh, is that if someone is likely to have compassion on a son or even an ox, it seems strange that they so clearly have, so much, uh, have no such compassion on the particular individuals that Jesus heals on the Sabbath. So this, this could just be a part of their hypocrisy, uh, which Jesus calls them on, but I think there is something deeper in the question. So we ought to ask then now, what is he appealing to? Why does he ask this question? Which one of you, if you have a son or an ox, will not immediately pull him out? This brings me to the second note, is that Jesus seems to be assuming that they, in fact, would pull it out on the Sabbath, and more importantly, perhaps, that they would do it immediately. Notice that word. It says, immediately pull him out. Why, why would such people as this pull out their son or their ox of a well or a ditch on the Sabbath? You might ask, like, why wouldn't they wait till the Sabbath was over? This was actually the thing that they 
that they accused Jesus of doing. They said, there are seven days of the week. Six days of, of these, you can come to be healed. Why do you come on the Sabbath to be healed in another occasion? So this is the question they would regularly pose. Why would they, according to the assumption of Jesus here, is what it seems to be, why would they pull their, their, their son or ox out of the well on the Sabbath immediately without hesitation? Um, and, and what I think, I think Jesus is not appealing to their sense of compassion for the life of an animal, even their son, but it's something else. And I think that, that he is appealing to their quite natural or human love for self. These people would, without hesitation, rescue their son, their ox, from a pit on the Sabbath, though they were not likely to do as Jesus has done. Because unlike the man with dropsy that Jesus heals with immediacy, it is quite easy to rescue a son or an ox, not from love of the son or ox, but from love for ourselves. This is my son. uh, This is my ox. This is of great benefit to me, and it is of great peril to my immediate interests that I not rescue this. The immediate human impulse of of fallen human nature is we immediately consider ourselves. We immediately love ourselves. Not that we like ourselves, but whether we believe we deserve it or not, we act with immediacy whenever we sense that our own needs are periled. So this is what I believe the situation is. Jesus sets up this situation. Which of you would not act so? And how do they answer? It says... But they, uh, let's see, and they could not reply to these things. So in their answer, they confirm uh, what I believe to be uh, the point Jesus is making, that this is the human nature. So what is, when we look at this narrative here, what place does it have at the dinner party? I've said already, I believe these first six verses tell us something about the nature of the love of Christ. And I think that we have here a beautiful contrast. We have the love of Christ and the sort of love of man. The, the love of Christ Act, well, I'll start with the love of man, actually. The love of man, we love ourselves. Whether we like ourselves or not, we act for our own good pretty much immediately whenever we sense we are appareled. This is the love of Christ, except inversed. We, he acts with that sort of immediacy in regard to the will of the Father and the, and the need of the neighbor. When he is confronted with a need, he thinks not of himself. What will this make me look like? Is something he might very well have asked in, in such a group as this. What will this look like in terms of, they, they will call me an unrighteous man who has broken a law or a code in regard to the Sabbath. doesn't consider these things. He acts with immediacy in the need of a neighbor without concern for himself. And in doing so, I'd like to point out that this is not a contradiction of the per- principle of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day to honor the Lord. And in honoring the Lord, we reflect his nature. The nature of God is righteousness. The nature of Christ as the Son of God, being one with God, is righteousness. God's righteousness acts in mercy with immediacy. And so we see here that Jesus actually fulfills the Sabbath by honoring the Lord on that day, by not seeking his own interests. The Sabbath isn't for self-indulgence. We, don't, we refrain from work, but not to indulge ourselves, but to honor God. And we honor God when we serve the needs of others that are before us with immediacy. That is the second situation. And with that, we are prepared for the second movement of the text. And so the next thing, again, is the parable of the wedding feast. So there's, this is the first of two parables. I about, about fell over just there. First of two parables that we see in this text. It's going to come in uh, 7 through 14. And at the end of that, we have a test for Christian love. And this, what I believe this parable does is teaches us something about the nature. We just saw an example. Now we're going to, see, we're going to learn some insight into the nature of the love of Christ. Let's pick up in verse 7. It says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So first, I'll I'll stop right here and just make a few notes. So Jesus is still, of course, at the dinner party, 
He tells a parable and makes a statement, both of which I believe give us key to understanding the nature of the love of Christ, of which we have just seen an example at work. Um, First, I'll note the following words of Jesus are prompted by an observation. The guests have all chosen for themselves places of honor. So you'll see there, verse 7, he notices this. They chose for themselves places of honor. So let me, I guess this might be a good opportunity to reflect on some cultural insight. And so we don't have this per se, at least not so spelled out in American culture. But in the day of Jesus, especially in the Near East, and I, would, I believe so even still today, but there's a heavy em- emphasis in the culture on honor and shame. So much of their, their social lives were set up in that context or that framework. And they had, it would seem, what, what would be seats that are honorable seats. These are high honor, maybe along like a gradient. Most honorable, least honorable. And Jesus notices that in that context, they choose for themselves the places of honor. So third, we should note uh, what a parable is, of course. So we're about to read a parable. And a parable is a short, usually surprising story invented for the purpose of teaching a singular, central, spiritual truth or moral. These usually portray, in simple terms, the nature of the kingdom of God, which is God's ideal rule and order that will one day be fully realized in a physical way. And as an ideal, they give us insight now into the sort of lives we ought to live as people of Christ, sons of God. The wisdom of parables, this is an important note, tends to contradict popular wisdom and present social order such that they tend to be received as controversial whether they seem that way to us now or not. So you, have to, you, should, you ought to have an eye for that. Like why, what, is, what about this parable is perhaps controversial? Because that is the nature of the kingdom of God. It actually shocks us. It even scandalizes us at times in the things that it it reveals to us. And here's what I believe this parable does, and then I'll read the parable. It sets up for us sort of an impossible problem, and here's that problem. The only path to greatness, or exaltation, is to completely abandon the pursuit of it. And this is to say that you can neither directly nor indirectly pursue greatness or exaltation for yourself and obtain it, neither directly nor indirectly. If it is your pursuit, you've already lost it. So let's, let's read 8 through 11. It says, here's the parable he tells them. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Here's the point. He tells us very clearly at the end. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So you can imagine this sort of picture here. Um, I imagine that these people are probably fighting, that Jesus is sitting here watching. These people are probably contending very sharply for the most honorable seat at the table. And Jesus says this. It's probably incredibly awkward. fits the title, Awkward Dinner Party. Uh, they're scrambling. They're sitting down. They're probably feeling pretty cozy and pretty comfortable with their, with their resistance of honor. And Jesus says, when you go to a wedding feast, here's some advice. Do not choose the place of honor for yourself. They might have even, these are religious authorities, people trained rigorously in the laws of God. And here they are. Uh, in a very childlike way, sort of contending for a place that makes them look incredible. Uh, you can imagine the seating. So we could actually, what I would propose, we could easily remove, I don't propose this, but I, could, I would say, we could remove the divine reality 
at play here and have what might seem to us like a very prudent social observation. This might be pretty uh, good advice if you were a person who uh, hopes to, to receive some sort of honor before people. But this is a parable, and so we know Jesus' interest isn't in the present social order, but in the kingdom of God. It's God's perfect rule and order. And I think we are in danger here, though, in that context of gravely misunderstanding what Jesus is and what he is not saying. So let's put our face in the text here and be discerning. So here's what I, don't, I think he does not mean. I think I'll start there. He does not mean to teach what has been called or can be called enlightened selfishness, that you should prudently feign or fake humility in order to avoid embarrassment with the true motivation of being honored in front of others. So you can imagine, like, that's sort of, it seems to be, at, on, at least on a surface level, what Jesus uh, advises. Like, when you go to a feast, uh, you want to be honored, what you should do is sit at a really low place. At worst case scenario, nothing happens, but you're not embarrassed in front of your friends or in front of the wedding guests. Best case scenario, the, the host of the party comes up to you and says, friend, move with me to a higher position. Boom, you've just been honored in front of all the guests. That seems to be, at least on one level, uh, what Jesus might be saying. But the reason I propose that that isn't, in fact, the purposes of Jesus' words here is that this is quite contrary to the ethic of Jesus. He has, he has no interest. I hope this isn't a surprise to anybody, but he doesn't have any interest in giving uh, us advice to make us look better at a dinner party. Absolutely no. If, you, if you're looking for good dinner party etiquette, Jesus, the Gospels are not the book I would point you to. He has no interest in making you look good in front of other people. And he would certainly never condone concealing pride with a show of humility simply to obtain exalting, uh, exaltation or greatness among those who are present. In fact, I would propose that the reality is that so long as one has exaltation or greatness for themselves in mind at all, and whether the worldly type or the spiritual type, they are in danger, we are in danger of fooling ourselves and being deceived. Um, let's see. Jesus did not intend to motivate us, I don't believe, towards a higher, truer, more glorious exaltation in heaven with this parable as though to say that your real problem is that you have an appetite for temporary, lower greatness, and you ought instead to desire a truer, more glorious type. And here's where I see the evidence for that. The evidence is in part in the fact that it takes, it doesn't take, this is a good test. Like, is this what Jesus means? You might ask yourself, this isn't, you know, foremost, we look to Scripture. What does the Scripture say? But you might ask yourself, can a non-Christian do this thing? Does it take a Christian to want heavenly glory? A lot of people, a lot of religions uh, believe in some notion of a heaven. And it, it really takes, it doesn't take any transformation of the Spirit. It doesn't take any Christian at all, really, to make good investment. We understand that if, there's, if we believe in our hearts and our minds, there is some sort of better thing out there for me, then I would easily sacrifice a lot right now in order to get that later. And so, in reality, that doesn't require any transformation of the heart. It doesn't require gospel power. And so that's, that's one evidence, but I think that the best evidence, of course, comes from the words of the scriptures, especially from the words uh, spoken by Christ himself. And so let's look at uh, Luke 9.24 as a, another example. For whoever would save his life, this is Jesus speaking, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So then, it is one thing to state factually, it's what I believe Jesus is doing in this parable, that the humble are exalted in the kingdom of God, or that those that lose their life, it is those that lose their life that will save it. It is another thing entirely to say that Jesus proposes, that his advice is that we humble ourselves 
in order to be exalted or that we lose it in order to save it. I believe that falls under the category of good advice, maybe, or prudent advice, and has no power to transform you. What he does mean then in telling this parable is to teach us something about the surprising nature of the kingdom of God in contrast to the present order, which we already have seen. He says it very clearly at the end here. It says, everyone who exalts himself, the present social order will be humbled, perhaps in this time and certainly in the kingdom of God. And inversely, he who humbles himself now will be exalted then by God himself. This parable is not advice, but it is here to tell us about the nature of God. And it is very clearly, I think, attested to in 1 Peter 5, 5. And it's the end of the verse there. I'll, we'll pull that up as well. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So this isn't advice for us. It tells us actually something about the nature of God, that God, his nature is bent in opposition to pride and it works in favor. He works with grace towards those who are humble. What then are we to do? It's not advice for good living or proper living. What are we to make of this parable in this room tonight? It's what we're interested in. So if it exists not as advice, but as a revolution of the, revelation of the nature of God, what effect can, we, can this have on us uh, tonight? So let's consider the effect. At first, I think that it had on the original audience. So you might imagine he's at this dinner party. They've just chosen for themselves places of honor. Jesus says, you shouldn't choose for yourselves places of honor, having perceived their hearts. This, hopefully, I would imagine, had quite a shameful effect on them if they had any self-awareness. So what we see then is that in Jesus' prophetic wisdom, he uses this short parable to do exactly what the parable foretells. Though they sought honor for themselves in contending for these high seats, they have now been humbled. Um, I think that was probably clear to see that at this table now, uh, they probably felt themselves or ought to have felt themselves quite humbled. As for us, I think we should look to this parable and let it tell us something about ourselves and then about Christ. Nobody here needs to be told that the Pharisees are no good in the scripture. Nobody in here needs a lesson that you should actually think pretty negatively about the Pharisees. So what does this tell us about ourselves? I think about ourselves, we should see that even if we should like to consider ourselves to be a lowly type of person, our nature is frustratingly fixated on exalting ourselves or becoming great. So again, when we consider the impossible problem that there's no way to obtain greatness except to abandon its pursuit, my instinct at least, and I think other, the instinct of, of man generally, is to just try to be more indirectly, to more indirectly pursue greatness for myself. I do good things for people right, pretty regularly. I think most people who, who want to be good in some way do good things for people. But, but I find that even when I do, good something, good, do something good for somebody, I can find in myself a desire to receive that credit. I want, uh, in, in sacrificing for you, I have found in myself, I've been, I receive Christ, I know the Lord, and yet even now I find that when I, I do something in sacrifice of another, I can find it in myself that I want the honor for that. And so even in doing that, I want something better than what I've just given you. I may have sacrificed for you, but what I really want is something better for myself, which is a sense of honor. I want to be lifted up uh, before you. I want credit for this. About, about Christ then, so that's what I think it tells us about our nature. And I think that what we can get from this parable is in, we, we can inverse that and we learn what it teaches us about the nature of Christ. And we, we should see, of course, quite the opposite. By his nature, we have just observed him in the, in the preceding narrative, uh, acting with a shocking lack of self-concern. In, in fact, if you have a Christ-centered life, 
I would venture to say that you probably think more often about Christ than Christ ever, in fact, thought about himself. Uh, he is a unique person in that the, if, if we are Christ-centered people, Christians are all called to be Christ-centered. We focus our lives on Christ, but what, uniquely about Christ, he was characterized by a shocking concern, not for himself, but for the Father, the will of the Father. He said, not my will, but yours be done. He magnified the Father, and now in the Spirit, we magnify Christ as the way to the Father. So it's a decidedly Christocentric or Christ-centered life, which means, in fact, that we probably think more often about Christ in his incarnation than he ever thought of himself. And on the contrary, his concern was so fixated on the will of the Father and on the individuals he came in contact with that he frequently acted in ways that were subversive to his own personal interests. If he wanted honor, he'd never acted in a way that would have gotten him any honor. If he had wanted, um, if he had wanted to, to appear to be righteous, he, he'd never acted in a way. If he wanted to even preserve his own life, every one of us has a very human instinct to preserve our lives. He very regularly acted without regard for that. Very, very often, he could have very well been killed. I mean, even at this party, they very well seem to be setting some sort of snare or trap for him. And even in speaking these prophetic words, he very well could have been uh, putting himself in harm's way. Violence and worse, maybe accusation unto death, which does in fact eventually happen for him. He doesn't act in regard, with, with thought for such things because he's not concerned foremost with himself because he, being controlled by love, is truly centered not on himself but on the will of the Father and on the neighbor. That's what we learn about Christ in this parable. Taking, again, only this, par- only this narrative, we see he acts with immediacy to heal the man with dropsy. He showed no regard for himself. And even now, he speaks with complete candor. The solution, then, it's an impossible problem. What's the solution? We discover is actually, this is a very Christian result, a Christian answer to this problem, is that a miracle must occur. We actually, what we need is that we need to become free from the problem by killing our all-too-human idolatry of our own greatness. This parable revealing the nature of God is a pride killer. We find in this, Jesus says, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, we find ourselves, man, I would love that exaltation. And we see quite the contrary in the work of Christ in his incarnation. And in that, we see the quite Christian solution to the problem is, is God working in us through faith. Um, we, we need to die and become of the same mind of Christ, which is accomplished only by the power of God working through faith. It's problem solved. And there's a beautiful passage in Philippians 2, which we'll, I'll read for you. You don't need to turn there. You've, you've probably heard it before. We've said it here even recently. It says this. It says, Complete my joys, Paul speaking, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here's the gospel power we can lay hold of tonight in this specific parable. Have this mind, which is already yours in Christ Jesus. Here's his mind, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even to death on a cross." Therefore, this is, the, this, is an, this is an example of what actually happens when you abandon the pursuit, as Christ did himself. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So no matter how enlightened our self-seeking becomes, 
If it remains self-seeking at all, we have not yet, at least in a particular instance, taken complete hold of the mind which is ours in Christ through faith. At admonition, let us all then look not for higher exaltation for ourselves or for more indirect, secret, kind of, we don't want to fool ourselves, indirect paths to greatness, but to Christ's own example, continuing to entrust ourselves to the transformation of the Holy Spirit who conforms us to the image of Christ. That's freedom. It releases us from the, uh, the human rat race of exaltation for ourselves. And it is quite humanly impossible to forget our own interest and in its spot place God's will and the interests of others as though in the same way that we would consider our own. A miracle is necessary and that type of miracle is available for us in the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I'm praying even now, I, I want that miracle for us. And it, it's, a, it's a recurring miracle that needs to happen. In every act, we need to be controlled by the Spirit of Christ to act with love for the neighbor as though they were ourselves. We need to invert the sort of love that we have naturally. And I, I love this quote from Martin Luther, which I'll have here on the screen as well. It says this, A Christian man lives not in himself, but in Christ and his neighbor. Otherwise, he is not a Christian. He lives in Christ through faith and his neighbor through love. By faith, he is caught up beyond himself into God, and by love he sinks down beneath himself into his neighbor. We have that now. We know the nature, we know a nature of the love of Christ is to work with immediacy, and we know that it is complete abandon of self-interest in favor of the neighbor. Self-love is completely inverted. A question now we ought to have is, okay, how do I know whether this is the sort of love which controls me, or whether in fact I am controlled uh, by other, some other sort or less type of love. And thankfully, uh, I believe what we have in the next several verses, verses 12 through 14, is a test for this exact sort of assessment. So let me read that for us tonight. Jesus also said to the man who had invited him, so now he's embarrassed the guests and he turns to the host, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Pretty awkward considering they're sitting among people of means religious authorities, probably their friends and brothers, with the exception of Jesus. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So again, history's most uncomfortable dinner, having sufficiently embarrassed the guest, it's, it's, turn, it's, it's the host's turn. And says, here's what he says. He says, do not invite your friends, your family, or people of means if you have a, if you have a dinner party. Um, why? lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. So let me ask a question. How, if you raise your hands, if you will, and I'll raise my hand as well here, it's true of me. Which of you have had in recent memory, maybe in the last few days or maybe in the, even the month, has had a, people over for dinner, maybe to your house or your family's house, uh, and those people were your friends or your family or maybe people, family's friends. Raise your hand if you've had a dinner, dinner party. All right, and so most of us in this room, and I won't have us raise hands uh, for this one, but he does say, he says, do invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Why? Well, assuming you have an interest in being blessed because of their inability to repay you will ensure that you will be blessed. In closing, he says, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So, of course, I won't have you raise your hand for that, but I'm assuming very few of us, myself included, I would not be raising my hand for this, would say that in recent memory, I have invited anybody in any significant physical need to my house for dinner. Um, so let's remind ourselves, of course, that this statement belongs in context. It, of course, doesn't make any sense outside of this context. So as we already know, Jesus says this at a dinner party, fitting for a discussion of a feast, consists primarily of Jewish guests, presumably have relative wealth. 
It follows a parable which teaches us something about the nature of Christ. He is free from the impossible problem because of the nature of the love which controlled him. And lastly, I've hoped to show that Christ's humility is distinguished from feigned humility or fake humility because rather than simply taking a roundabout way to exaltation or greatness, true humility is a byproduct, not an end in itself, of forgetting the self and putting on the neighbor. This is embodied for us in Christ, and only when Christians act in the spirit of Christ do we manage to escape that problem. So even so, life is not very black and white. As Christians, none of us are always selfish or always selfless. So most usually our actions and works are not entirely one or the other. And I think this is very dangerous for us because for myself, speaking for myself, I am tempted in most cases to justify myself more often than submitting to healthy conviction. Since I am not completely selfish in any of my actions, hardly ever, um, I am most often, rather than submitting my, myself and my actions to the, submit, to, the, to the light of Christ for conviction, I'd rather justify myself with what seems in me to be a sense of selflessness. We can center, we can, but in doing this, here's why it's dangerous, we can tent ourselves very often on doing no more than the sinners which Jesus addresses in, in Luke 6. He says in verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. What is needed then is some sort of test. We need this test to submit our love to for critical examination under the light of Christ and the Holy Spirit. This is where I believe this statement comes in. Here's a question I believe this text is meant to promise, or excuse me, it meant to prompt. Do I love my friends, my family, my rich neighbors for their sake, or do I love them for mine? Is it for their sake that I invite them to my home, or do I do so for some hope of reciprocation? It is, if it is for the hope of reciprocation that I love them, then I do, do I not then simply just love myself or the benefit I suspect I will get from them? Uh, if you've been participating and equipped this, this semester, this is a, a big bulk of what we've been reading uh, about this semester. It comes from, uh, there's a quote I'd like to, to read here from Paul Ramsey in his book, Basic Christian Ethics. It says, in the case of a friendly neighbor, it is possible in loving him to only love his friendliness towards us in return. Then he is not loved for his own sake. He is loved for the sake of his friendliness, for the sake of the benefit to be gained from reciprocal friendship. Thus, often, this is true of myself, it's true of Christians, love for a friend shows up as what we have called enlightened selfishness, which is a very good thing indeed in comparison with crude selfishness, but still quite different from Christian love for neighbor. So if we're honest, if we put much of our what we, what we pass for ourselves is love through such a test as this, a rigorous test as this, much of it would be shown to be something less uh, than Christian love. I'm very inclined in many cases to be quite sacrificial for somebody I really, really like. I really enjoy this person. I have some hope of friendship with this person. And, I, and if nothing else, I, I just enjoy them as a person and that's gift to me. But if, if there's a person I know that I actually find to be quite burdensome or, or annoying perhaps, then I am very, very, very reluctant to show kindness. And I'll justify it. I'll say, well, this isn't actually good for them if I did this for them. This wouldn't help them in the long run. And so that is quite condemning about the human nature. But this is why exactly we need to submit our love and submit our actions to such a rigorous test as this. We may ask on the one, on the one hand, why do I find myself so sacrificial for these people? And for these people, I'm so apprehensive and stingy. It may be in loving our friends, we often manage only to love ourselves. And I'll point this out, that we are not, Jesus says, love your enemies. He never, he never gives an explicit command, that I'm, at least that I'm thinking of right now, 
Love your friends. Uh, and, but we're not, to, of course, to love our enemy in any particular way that we would not, of course, love our friends as well. And yet the reason I believe Jesus says that is that it happens that very often we do not even love our friends in any particularly Christian way, much less our enemies. It is true that even sinners love their friends, quote unquote, because one does not need to be controlled by the spirit of Christ to sacrifice for the sake of benefiting from friendship. There's that test again. Can a non-Christian do this? Can a non-Christian be kind to somebody they like? And the answer is resounding yes. And so if you content yourself in when we submit ourselves to the light of Christ, that I'm a pretty nice guy to my best friend, then that, that's something less than what we see the love of Christ, uh, that con- the love that control Christ acting in. So I want to warn that, even, even in proposing that, that this is a test, right? So maybe our consciences are like, oh, thank goodness, like, I don't actually have to invite poor people over. I just have to use this as some sort of a test. And so I do want to warn us, I don't want to soften the sting of Jesus' word. And this is meant for my, myself as well as anybody. As I've said, I've, I'm not particularly good at this. But Jesus didn't spend a lot and probably the majority of his time on earth with people who were poor, crippled, lame, and blind just to be a symbol for us. Uh, or because he would not have been able, he could have easily have spent his time with rich people and would not have loved their wealth. He could have done that. It wasn't because he was worried about that that he spent most of his time with poor people. The love of Christ and the spirit of Christ made him most notably, it made him, it controlled him, making him a friend to those who were in dire need of very physical, immediate need for help and mercy. And so it ought to do for us too. We will love our friends in a very, very Christian way when we're controlled by the love of Christ, but this does not in some way exempt us from uh, finding ourselves compelled towards people uh, with very, phys- uh, very physical, dire need. So far be it from us, we don't want to look at God's word and find a way to justify ourselves rather than letting it be offensive in all of its offensiveness to us, that we might repent and receive the grace readily available in Christ. And I'll point out that you will not find a New Testament book that does not have a particular concern for the poor. And so we have no excuse for neglecting them in our lives, as is so often the case for myself. So I'll confess that tonight. We submit ourselves to the testing of the Spirit. We remain ever dependent on the grace of God to lay hold of the mind, which is already ours in Christ. It's gospel power. Last parable. Uh, I'm going to take a drink of water, It's good, but it's going to be uh, verses 15 to the end here. Spoke quite a bit of water on myself. It says, When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, It's awkward. This guy might have been trying to defuse the situation. Like Jesus is sitting here saying, like, when you have a feast, invite a bunch of poor people, not your friends, looking at all the friends like around the table. And this guy's like, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so we don't really know the motivation. I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here. We don't really know the motivation why he says this, but perhaps he did so to defuse the situation. Jesus doesn't take that signal very well, or at least he ignores the signal. He says to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. So there's these people who have been invited. Now the servant is going out to these people saying, the feast that you were invited to is ready. Come, enjoy the feast. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excuse. Another said, well, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excuse. The last said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come which is an interesting thing. He doesn't say specifically his obligation in this context. He says, I have a wife, 
Uh, I've married a wife. Maybe he's honeymooning. And therefore, I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became very angry. Oh, excuse me, not very. So became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have done, what you have commanded has been done, and there still is room. And the master said to the servant, go out then to the highways or the hedges, compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So what happens here is a man interjects, blesses everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's a true statement. Anybody who will enjoy heaven in the presence of God is a blessed man indeed, a blessed person indeed. So what about this statement then? Why does Jesus, in response to such a, it's a true statement, why does Jesus respond with this parable? And I believe that is because he is contradicting present assumption with a surprising statement told in the form of a parable. It's what he often does. Parables are typically received in context as, whoa, that doesn't make any sense in light of what I usually think. It flips our understanding. The understanding that Jesus is communicating here, the surprising fact, is that not everyone wants to eat bread in the kingdom of God. You say, blessed is everyone that should eat bread in the kingdom of God. And yet I would ask you, Jesus says, would you believe me if I told you that there will be many who were invited to such a feast as this and asked that they be excused from it? They didn't say, I don't believe in the feast. Of course, this is in a parable. They're talking about an actual feast. They believe very well in this free, great feast. They asked that they be excused from it. These same people have expressed similar... I bet these same people, the one with the wife, the oxen, the, uh, the field, they, they probably express excitement, similar sentiment about being at the table of God or the banquet. And yet all the same, they have asked to go about with their previous engagements. Now, why in the world, what could possibly possess a man who believes in God and believes in heaven to say, no thanks to the kingdom of God? What in the world? I think that's a a very relevant question we ought to be asking of the text. And I, I think you can look at the whole Bible, the whole New Testament even, or maybe just the Gospels, and you have many plausible examples we can look to in the teachings uh, there that why someone might not want to go to heaven. But instead of looking through those, uh, it might, it's, I think it's most helpful for us to w- just stick to the context we're in. And one way I think we can do that is contrasting the guests who were invited with those who replaced them. I think parables are often meant to invoke a sense of comparing and contrasting. So let's ask the question, why would the poor, the crippled, the lame, blind, and just random people passing by on the highways be more inclined to come to the feast than the original guests. One possible reason uh, might be found in the content of their excuses. So let's look at those. They were occupied, preoccupied, I should say, with busyness and perhaps even led astray by covetousness and wealth. So in making this statement, not everyone wants to eat bread in the kingdom of God. I believe what we have here most substantially for us is a warning against worldliness, a a warning against riches, possessing much, and a warning against uh, covetousness. So let's contrast these guests. Unlike the invited guests, the poor would not be likely to be preoccupied with property, cattle, and maybe, I'm not positive on this one, but maybe they would not have even been afforded the opportunity to become married in their context. So these excuses simply did not exist for them. Uh, Unlike the invited guests who may have thought themselves full, they may have thought themselves full with the abundance of their possessions, The poor were probably, by virtue of their hunger, viscerally aware 
that they, in fact, could greatly benefit from a great free feast. This is probably a very, very attractive thing. They, there's no way they would say they don't want this thing. And unlike the invited guests, they were not likely to presume that another such free and great banquet might come along. And, and they probably did not think them, they, they were not likely to presume that they would even be invited to such a feast. I think when we look at the guests at the actual uh, dinner party that Jesus is at, I think many of these people probably presume, yeah, of course I want to eat bread at the kingdom of God. Now, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a man of, I'm a man of, of Jewish faith. I believe in God. Uh, I'm going to heaven. Uh, I believe in such things. And so maybe even here we have a warning against presuming that we will eat bread at the kingdom of God by some virtue other than the free redeeming work of Jesus Christ. So if you're in here tonight, like it begs the question, do I know that I am saved in the work of Christ and I will eat at the table of God, or do I just presume that probably I'm going to heaven on some random cultural assumption about what makes you a worthy person for a good place? Uh, so there is, of course, a warning against presumption in that regard. The, the poor people in the streets were not likely to presume, I'm going to a feast today. They had not received a previous invitation. They were just sitting there on the street, some of them poor and hungry. They get a feast. They're not, they're not going to be sitting there thinking, how do I get out of this one? So a question I think is natural at this point is, is it a virtue to be poor or that to be wealthy means to be far from God? Of course, no. But we would do well to remember what Jesus says in the gospel about these respective categories. When you, Jesus, if Jesus warns about something, we take it seriously. We don't excuse it and say, well, it's not actually that way. About the poor, he says in Luke 6, 21 and 22, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. I think getting out here that these people need hope, and so they are not likely to just go about filling themselves up on uh, worldliness. About the rich, this is about people who have a lot of things. Jesus says in Luke 18, 23 and 25, this is the, uh, the rich young ruler. It says, when he heard these things, the rich young ruler, he became very sad. Why? For he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So we take the warnings of Jesus seriously. And all of us, including myself in this statement, of course, we have relative wealth. Like we, We're college students. We're like, we're poor people. And we may well be poor relative to other people, but relative to the most of the world, we enjoy considerable wealth. And even relative to some Americans, we're a university, most of us right now. So we enjoy some relative wealth, and so we would do well not to think, well, this warning is for somebody else. I don't have much. We actually do, in fact, have quite a bit uh, that might give us a basis for thinking ourselves quite full and quite fulfilled in this life. So this warning is, in fact, for us. And so let's not play with fire, thinking ourselves to be above temptation to worldliness and covetousness. I I think that uh, it's, it's worth noting. I don't know that there's a single place in the, in the New Testament where Jesus warns against being a poor person. Though you would think in this country that it was the absolute worst thing that could possibly happen to you is that you should be poor. And yet, in nowhere do we see that this is innately going to be uh, dangerous. Although, of course, I suppose it could tempt you to thinking yourself virtuous for being a poor person. So I think we should change our perspective. This is a practical application, not from the text, but... Uh, I think that sometimes we think, I'm just going to aspire to have a lot of things, and I'm just going to say, well, God will probably teach me through that temptation to not be tempted to worldliness. When I think it's probably more in line with the body of Scripture to say that God will not train us in that means, but that he will use, in fact, our lack of possessions to train our hearts to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So let's not be overly eager 
for gain. I think we can safely abandon the pursuit which non-Christians pursue every day. So just get a bunch of things. We may well enjoy a bunch of things in our life that God may indeed grant us such uh, wealth. And yet, always remember, he speaks very, very uh, ominously about the dangers of wealth. This is very explicitly, I think, in this text, a warning uh, for us who enjoy wealth. And let's remember the blessed promises of uh, Luke It says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. They're called blessed. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. We want the righteousness and the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. We want to be made like Christ. We want to be satisfied. Let's refuse to be filled up on five five yoke of oxen, getting married, and having a field. I mean, obviously, that's kind of a silly example in our context. But it begs the question, this parable does, do you want to eat bread in the kingdom of God? You say, blessed is everyone who goes to heaven Do you even in your life have any longing for the fulfillment of the righteousness, righteous coming of the kingdom of God? I don't mean this to make you think, oh man, am I I a Christian? This isn't meant to inspire doubt in you, but it is meant to challenge presumption. If you just think you're going to heaven for really no good reason at all, I think this ought to be a pretty good reality check. Okay, now now I want to read, I've, I've tried, you may have noticed, to stay uh, pretty much just in the Gospel of Luke here. I think that it's got a very particular uh, message about such, such things in it. And I want to I kind of end tonight in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. Jesus' context of this, Jesus has just begun his ministry of proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's in his boyhood. He's in Nazareth, boyhood synagogue. And he reads a scroll. He pulls out a scroll from the prophet Isaiah, which is quoted here. When he reads this, what he is doing is saying he is, in fact, the fulfillment of the one truly spoken of in this text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So I'm the me. So what, is, what does Jesus say here? He says, this is the nature of his own ministry. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Why? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me. Of course, it's, it's, I'll, I'll stop there. It's good news for everybody, but it's, it is going to be good news to the poor who do not think themselves very full. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And band, you can go ahead and make your way up. Uh, but I want us to notice here in this, uh, this revelation of the nature of the ministry of Jesus that there's a pretty stark parallel here between the servant. You're right, we have the parable. Uh, the master of the banquet sends out, and he tells the servant, go out. And, uh, and, and bring the guests, fill up my house. My house will be full when this feast begins. And I'm going to want you to go to the highways, to the hedges. That's what the pattern in the parable. And I think we see in these words from Jesus in Luke 4, a pretty interesting parallel there between the servant and Christ. And you should see that this is the mission of Christ. He's, a, he's the prophet of God, the one true prophet of God, sent from God to proclaim good news. There is a free and great banquet where you will actually receive Freedom from the bondage to sin and self. We are dead. We're dead men walking who have nothing to do except seek our own greatness, which ends actually in, in our own humiliation and uh, the judgment of Christ. So but the good news is that we actually can instead be filled with satisfaction in the person of Christ because he could perform the work on the cross to redeem us to himself. That is the joy of Christ, a people redeemed to himself to glorify in God forever. It's offered to us tonight. It's the good news. I want to pray and then we'll sing. Father, we love you tonight. We want you uh, to work in our lives. We thank you, God, for the good news of the gospel. May it not fail to be good news to us, God. May we not think ourselves full or think ourselves to be 
uh, a quite godly bunch of people, God, but may we submit uh, all the more to you. We love you, God. You are perfect and righteous. Your, your righteousness is always acting towards us in mercy and grace. Thank you, God, for, for your word through which we receive abundant instruction. We receive good news and we, we learn uh, to treasure you, Lord. You are our one treasure and we want to become like you. Thank you, God, that you give us everything we need for godliness. It's in Jesus' name, amen.